This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Friday, February 2nd, 2024. Strong January jobs report from the Labor Department. 353,000 jobs created. Unemployment rate stays at 3.7%. President Biden writing, America's economy is the strongest in the world. Today, we saw more proof. Senator Chris Murphy, lead Democrat on the U.S. border security negotiations, says the text of the deal he reached with Republicans will be released this weekend and should get a vote in the Senate next week. We'll hear how House Speaker Mike Johnson, a Republican, and Congressman Henry Cuellar, a Democrat, view the chances of that deal passing the House. Nevada is the next stop for Republican presidential candidates. We'll talk with Nevada political reporter John Ralston about next week's contest, including why there are both primary and a caucus on the Republican side. President Biden attends the dignified transfer ceremony for the bodies of the three American troops killed by a drone attack on a U.S. base in Jordan, as reports now coming in from the Pentagon that the U.S. has started retaliatory strikes, dozens of them in Syria and Iraq. At the United Nations, U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield opposing the latest resolution in the Security Council calling for a ceasefire in the war between Israel and Hamas. Longtime radio show host Joe Madison has died. You'll hear part of a C-SPAN interview with him from 2007. And on this Groundhog Day, Congressman Glenn Thompson, Republican of Pennsylvania, whose district includes Puxatawney, celebrates the tradition of Puxatawney Phil. From Associated Press, the nation's employers delivered a stunning burst of hiring to begin 2024, adding 353,000 jobs in January, in the latest sign of the economy's continuing ability to shrug off the highest interest rates in two decades. Friday's government report showed that last month's job gain, roughly twice what economists had predicted, topped the December gain of 333,000, a figure that itself revised sharply higher. The unemployment rate stayed at 3.7%, just above a half-century low. Wages rose unexpectedly fast in January, too. That reporting from Associated Press. The acting Labor Secretary Julie Sue was interviewed today by Yahoo Finance. This month's report crushed expectations. 353,000 jobs created, uh, remaining low levels of unemployment. It's been under 4% now for two years straight. This jobs report says 3.7%. We continue to see labor force participation high, meaning that people are in the labor market and when they're looking for work, uh, they're finding work. The other thing to note is that the wage growth was also higher than expected. And it's 4.5% 
percent over the year and so the wage growth is also consistently beating inflation so all around a very very strong report that demonstrates that president biden's economic policies are working and we are ha we have a very strong uh, economy at the moment julie i'm curious if we want to pick out one uh, number within this print that wasn't too impressive or maybe didn't surprise here to the upside that would have been labor force participation it remained flat on that month over month basis why do you think we've seen labor force participation stall at this level? So for prime age workers, the number ticked up a little bit, right? And I will tell you that, you know, I certainly see when I travel the country, I was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I was in Columbia, South Carolina, I've been in Las Vegas, Nevada, wherever I go, we, I see workers uh, looking for jobs, finding them, but more importantly, feeling a sense of security, you know, feeling like uh, now when they join an apprenticeship program, when they go to a job interview, they're getting a job that, you know, it's not only a job, it's a good job that's going to allow them to support themselves, uh, you know, support their families and get a little bit of what the president calls breathing room. This is the economy that we want to build. People who want to work can find work and they're good jobs. The acting Labor Secretary Julie Sue interviewed on Yahoo Finance today about the January jobs report. An Axios article on the report reads, there was one key detail that may point to a job market slowdown in the months ahead. The average work week was 34.1 hours in January, down from 34.3 hours in December. The average work week is down half an hour over the last year. Lowest number since 2010 outside the pandemic recession, ZipRecruiter chief economist Julia Pollack notes. But last month's drop could partly reflect unusually cold January weather, which tends to cause cutbacks in hours in construction and other sectors with outdoor work. That's from Axios. Congressman John Rose, Republican from Tennessee, spoke about President Biden's economic agenda Thursday on the House floor. He posted his remarks today on X after the jobs report for January was released. President Biden's economic policies continue to wreak havoc on families across our country, including the Tennessee families that I represent. Prices have skyrocketed by 17.2% since the president was sworn into office. The experts tell us these rising prices are a direct result of the deficit spending of the last three years coupled with rising energy costs. And yet this administration continues to borrow and stifle American energy growth with multitudes of new and costly regulations. When President Biden took office, gas prices to average less than $2 per gallon in Tennessee. Right now, they're more than $3. This is a direct result of the president's ongoing war against American energy production. House Republicans remain committed to getting our fiscal house back in order by cutting deficit spending and passing legislation that robustly grows our economy to help get us out of the red. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and I yield back. Congressman John Rose, Republican from Tennessee, on the House floor. Wall Street today, the Dow up 134, NASDAQ up 267, S&P up 52. Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat from Connecticut, lead negotiator in the Senate on the bipartisan border security agreement, posting on X today. Republicans said the border is a priority and we should craft a bipartisan bill to help control the border. We did that. We have a deal. This weekend, we will release the bill and vote next week. It's decision time. The Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, said on the Senate floor on Thursday that that U.S. border security bill will be put together with President Biden's $100 billion-plus request for aid to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. 
and then the first test vote on the package, 60 votes needed to advance it, will be no later than next Wednesday. The House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican from Louisiana, spoke about how a Senate bipartisan border security agreement would fare in the House. He was interviewed this morning on Fox Business Channel. He also talked about Republican Congressman Ken Buck of Colorado saying on Thursday that he would not vote to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over border security and immigration issues. It's very concerning. We really don't know anything yet. It's all conjecture because we've not seen the text. Now, we've been promised that for over two months. Chuck Schumer has been presiding over that, of course. He has the Democrat majority in the Senate. They've been trying to work this deal. We've heard rumors about it, reports about it. But even as we sit here this morning, Maria, I've never seen the text. Well, they say they're going to release it tonight. Uh, That in and of itself makes me think, well, why release it on a Friday night going into the weekend? What's that about? Who knows? I I, I don't know what to make of that. I I hope that it comes out soon. If if indeed there is going to be text. But again, we've been promised this for weeks and weeks. The House did our job. Remember, we passed H.R. 2. That's our Secure the Border Act. Months ago, nine months ago, it's been sitting on Chuck Schumer's desk collecting dust. If they really wanted to solve the problem, all he has to do is bring that up for a vote and send it to the president's desk. But he refuses to do that. And that's exactly what I was just going to say. Uh, Mr. Speaker, you've already done H.R. 2. What was the point of going to the Senate and starting from scratch when you've already put the building blocks in place? Yeah, and those building blocks are the necessary elements. Remember, we would fix the broken parole system, fix the in the catch and release policy, restore the Remain in Mexico policy, which was President Trump's uh, main tool there that, that stemmed the flow. As he said, he had the most secure border in the history of the country. And now we have the worst unmitigated catastrophe that you can imagine. It, it, the, the Biden went in on the first day of office and began issuing executive orders to unwind and create this catastrophe. Maria, we say it's by design because there is no other explanation. We document 64 specific actions, executive actions, agency actions that he and Mayorkas have taken to create this. They could unwind it to today by the stroke of a pen, but they refuse to do it. So, I mean, Mayorkas is now facing an impeachment uh, in the House. Colorado Congressman Ken Buck was the one Republican coming out against impeaching the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. He called it a stunt, Mr. Speaker. Uh, is it a stunt? Do you have the votes to impeach Mayorkas? Absolutely not. Ken Buck's a good friend and colleague. I'll talk with him this weekend. I saw those comments. They're concerning because, look, everybody knows Mayorkas is an unmitigated disaster as a cabinet secretary. I believe he's the worst in the history of the country. And impeachment is a is a is a really important and serious measure for the House to take. It's an important a heavy responsibility that we have under the Constitution. But when someone refuses to uh, comply with their oath of office, when they intentionally break existing federal law, and when they lie to Congress, it's a great breach of public trust. And there really is no other measure that we have in the House to hold them accountable but that ultimate penalty. House Speaker Mike Johnson on Fox Business Channel this morning. An Associated Press article about what the Senate border security agreement might be, some of the reporting has this, both former President Donald Trump and Speaker Johnson have derided one of the bill's main compromises, an expulsion authority that would automatically kick in on days when illegal crossings reach more than 5,000 over a five-day average across the southern border. They both argue it amounts to greenlighting 5,000 migrants to cross the border daily. But Senator James Lankford, Republican of Oklahoma, and Senator Kirsten Sinema, Independent of Arizona, who also crafted the bill, have pushed back hard on that claim They said the expulsion authority is only meant to prevent authorities from being overwhelmed with asylum seekers and that any migrant seeking asylum will face both tougher standards in initial interviews to enter the asylum system and a fast track system that either grants their asylum application 
or deports them. That reporting from Associated Press. Congressman Henry Cuellar, Democrat from Texas, also spoke about the U.S. border security agreement coming out of the Senate. He was interviewed this morning on MSNBC. Certainly we've seen large numbers. We saw what happened in December, but we're having 10 to 12,000 people a day. Now it's about 4,500 people a day. Uh, and the reason is we didn't build a new border wall. We didn't have border patrol. Congress didn't act on this. What happened was... Uh, is Mexico started taking people off the train, started returning people back to the southern border. They actually have more National Guard and immigration officers than we have Border Patrol at our border. So it, what Mexico does uh, has an impact on it. So that's part of the question we need to look at. It's not only what we do at the border, but trying to get our allies like Mexico to enforce our immigration laws. Congressman, good morning. So some of what we're hearing, no one has seen the text of this bill. We should remind everyone. So even Speaker Johnson doesn't know exactly what's in it over on the Senate side. But some of the tidbits that we're hearing, the themes were coming out of it. It does sound, and that's according to Republicans on the Senate side, like one of the strongest, most conservative immigration bills we've seen in a long time and something that people like Mike Johnson have been asking for for a long time. So is it your assessment that your Republican colleagues in the House are acting in good faith. The many people have suggested that they're operating on the orders of, of Donald Trump. And Speaker Johnson, in fact, has said himself that he talks to Donald Trump constantly about this bill. Do you think you have good faith partners in the Republican Party on this issue? You know, certainly some of them are not acting on policy. They're acting on politics, because how can you reject the bill that you haven't in red? Uh, nobody has seen the text. I think they're uh, trying to finish that text. So how do you reject it? And that's what's amazing. You cry wolf and say there's a crisis. And then finally, when you get one of the toughest border security bills in generations, they reject it because one person told, told them, no, it's not good for my election. It helps Biden. Uh, and they're rejecting something they haven't read. And on top of that, uh, on top of that, the last two years on Homeland, I said as the ranking Homeland Appropriations, uh, the subcommittee for uh, Homeland, We've added $2.5 uh, billion to CBP for border new border patrol. Every single Republican, except for two that are still in the House, voted no. So they said no to money, and they're saying no to policy at this time. Congressman Henry Cuellar, Democrat from Texas, on MSNBC this morning. Saturday is the South Carolina Democratic presidential primary, the first official primary for the Democratic side. Vice President Kamala Harris today holding a get-out-the-vote rally in South Carolina State University campus in Orangeburg. By the way, this is also the first time that President Biden's name and that of challenger Congressman Dean Phillips, Democrat of Minnesota, will be on the same ballot. Here's Vice President Harris. And it is so wonderful to be back in this beautiful state. This is my third trip to South Carolina just since the beginning of the year. And my ninth trip to the state as vice president. And of course, there were many trips that I have taken to be here and visit with you before. And in 2020, it was South Carolina that put President Joe Biden and me on the path to the White House. In 2020, in the height of an historic pandemic, 
In the midst of so much loss and uncertainty, the people of South Carolina showed up to vote. You convinced your friends and your family members and neighbors and co-workers of the power of their vote and the power they have when they show up to vote. And it is because of that work that Joe Biden is President of the United States and I am the first woman and first black woman to be Vice President of the United States. <laughs> and an auntie. <laughs> In 2020, you sent us to the White House because, frankly, we had some business to handle. In 2020, South Carolina said, we need to take on the issue of high-speed internet. For years, I have spoken with leaders from Hemingway to Lower Richland to here in Orangeburg about the urgent need for high-speed internet in particular for rural communities where students have had to go to the public library just to submit their homework on the Wi-Fi. Because you voted in 2020, President Biden and I are connecting every person in America with high-speed internet, including more than 100,000 families right here in South Carolina. In 2020, you said we need to do more to help folks struggling with student loan debt. The young couples who worry that they will never be able to buy a home or start a family because of their student loans. The mothers who work two and three jobs just to keep up with their monthly payments. And so, because you voted in 2020, President Biden and I have canceled more than $136 billion in student loan debt for more than three and a half million Americans. And although the Republicans in Congress refuse to work with us to cancel more debt, we will not be deterred. President Biden and I will keep fighting for relief from student loan debt. South Carolina in 2020, you said, as you just heard, I say it often, HBCUs are centers of academic excellence. Vice President Kamala Harris in Orangeburg, South Carolina, at South Carolina State University, ahead of Saturday's first in the nation for the Democrats presidential primary in that state. Next contest on the Republican side in the presidential race is in Nevada, both a caucus and a primary. C-SPAN asked John Ralston, CEO and editor of the Nevada Independent, longtime reporter and commentator in Nevada politics, why? There is a state-mandated primary for both parties on February 6th. Then the Republicans are having a separate caucus where their delegates will be uh, awarded on February 8th. Uh, Nevada was long a caucus state uh, until 2021 when it was changed by the Democratic-controlled legislature with some support from Republicans after the Iowa caucus disaster of 2020 uh, that they didn't want to see repeated here. And Nevada wanted to make a bid for first in the nation primary, uh, which ultimately failed and, and Joe Biden chose South Carolina. With that backdrop, 
uh, the Republicans uh, decided they wanted to have a caucus. And this state party here is completely controlled by Trump supporters. And it's clear that they wanted to have a smaller universe for the former president to compete in and one that was more controlled. The primary, uh, this law was also changed uh, in, in reaction to COVID, has all mail ballots. Uh, to, it's a universal mail ballot state now. So everyone gets a mail ballot. So every Republican got a ballot. And uh, there is some thought that they were concerned uh, that there, there might be a problem for Trump in a larger universe. He would have won the primary easily, but maybe by not as big a margin as he's going to win that caucus. So in a caucus, are they showing up somewhere and the primary, they can just mail in their ballot? Uh, primary, they can mail in and most are, or they can vote in person. Early voting uh, is, is occurring right now, uh, and then they can appear in person on February 6th. But most voters are voting by mail, uh, probably 90 to 95 percent, uh, in fact, are voting by mail. And that's true of both parties, slightly smaller percentage among Republicans. Caucus, they have to go uh, somewhere, but it's not a pure caucus in that Caucus is the way they used to work is you'd have people giving speeches for each candidate. And then there's a 15% threshold that you have to meet and they would eliminate candidates. This is kind of only a pseudo caucus in that you can fill out a ballot and leave. You don't have to stick around for speeches. And so uh, it's unclear how well it's going to work, but it's clearly been set up to give Trump a huge advantage. And now with the winnowing that's occurred, he is on the ballot alone with a long shot candidate by the name of Ryan Binkley. Who is participating in the primary, the Republican primary? So uh, uh, Tim Scott and Mike Pence, who are no longer in the race, filed for the primary. And Nikki Haley is on the primary ballot. Uh, and, and she essentially has said the state is not fair. She's right in, as, as, as far as it goes towards the caucus. And she filed for the primary very late. Uh, she is going to win that. Uh, uh, yeah, but it depends what the, what win means. She's not going to win any delegates, and it's potentially uh, uh, she could lose in that primary to something that is only exists in Nevada called none of these candidates, which appears on every single statewide race. The governor, who is a Republican, has endorsed Trump, but said he's voting in the primary, not just to keep his perfect record intact of voting, but to vote for none of the above. And the Trump campaign is trying to get everybody to vote for none of the above so Haley will look bad. She has not spent any resources invested at all in Nevada. If she had, she certainly would win that easily. Now, there is some question about whether she could lose to none of the above, which almost never wins one of these races, of course. Has she or the other candidates been campaigning in the state? She is not. Uh, she has essentially said she's going to ignore Nevada, that it's not fair. and She's concentrating all of her resources right now in South Carolina. But Trump has been here. He did a rally uh, here recently. He's invested uh, in this state. The state Republican Party base here is firmly with Trump, as it is in most places. And he really came here mostly uh, uh, just a few days ago to tell people not to vote in the primary and to make sure 
sure that they vote in the caucus so he can run up his margin and and make sure that Haley, who will uh, either win or 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 lose to none of the above uh, on on uh, two days earlier, will look bad. On the Democratic side, what is happening? Not much. Uh, I, I, you know, it's Joe Biden and and then some minor candidates. Uh, but the, Biden wants to run up the score here too, uh, and so they're they're not leaving anything to chance. They wouldn't, you know, with all the talk of how Joe Biden's numbers are not good and they're not good here either, although not generally among Democrats, where he remains fairly robust. There is going to be a none of the above, none of these candidates on that ballot too. And so they don't want to see that get too big a number. So the vice president was here last weekend. The president is coming this weekend to fire up the troops to vote. Now, early voting is already going on and tens of thousands of Democrats have already voted. Uh, and so uh, most of the vote is probably going to be in before the actual primary occurs on February 6th. John Ralston, CEO and editor of the Nevada Independent, part of a C-SPAN interview, which is part of this week's C-SPAN 2024 campaign trail episode. Washington Today continues in a moment. Hi, this is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. I'd like to introduce you to one of the producers here at C-SPAN, my colleague, Sean. Thanks, Rachel. If you're a fan of Washington Today, we think you'll also like our evening newsletter, Word for Word, which brings you a recap of the day's most important political and policy events delivered right to your inbox. Read about what happened on Capitol Hill and at the White House and watch video highlights featuring the day's newsmakers. Hear them word for word. Join our community of informed listeners and viewers. Head over to cspan.org slash connect and subscribe to Word for Word today. Thanks for listening and staying connected with Word for Word. Subscribe now at cspan.org slash connect. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast on the free C-SPAN Now mobile app and wherever you find your podcasts. President Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden participated in a dignified transfer at Dover Air Force Base in Delaware of the three soldiers killed in the drone attack in Jordan by suspected Iran-backed militants. White House reporters covering the president describe what happened. The bodies of Army Reserve soldiers Sergeant William Rivers, Sergeant Breonna Moffat, and Sergeant Kennedy Sanders, each in a flag-draped coffin case, was removed one at a time by teams of six carriers in camouflage uniforms and white gloves who bore them from the cargo bay of a massive gray C-5 transport plane to a van. President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden, both in overcoats against a cold north wind, stood just ahead and on the port side of the opened-up nose of the C-5. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Joint Chiefs of Staff Chair C.Q. Brown to their left. They stood at the base of the ramp while a chaplain read a prayer. Then looking straight ahead, hands over their hearts as each case was carried past them. The families of the service members viewed what the military refers to as a solemn movement from a small cordoned off area on the tarmac out of view of the press pool where two rows of plastic folding chairs had been arranged. The van doors were closed and the van 
driven slowly away as all stood at attention. The President, First Lady, and others in attendance left in single file, and the ceremony concluded. That reporting from the White House reporters. And we're getting a statement from CENTCOM, U.S. Central Command, that forces there conducted airstrikes in Iraq and Syria against Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, Quds Force, and affiliated militia groups. U.S. military forces struck more than 85 targets with numerous aircraft to include long-range bombers flown from the United States. The statement goes on, the airstrikes employed more than 125 precision munitions. The facilities that were struck include command and control operations centers, intelligence centers, rockets and missiles, and unmanned aerial vehicle storages and logistics and munitions supply chain facilities of militia groups and their IRGC sponsors who facilitated attacks against U.S. and coalition forces. That statement from U.S. Central Command. This from Reuters. Algeria has drafted a U.N. Security Council resolution to demand an immediate humanitarian ceasefire between Israel and Hamas, a move that the United States, a council veto power, opposes because it says it would only benefit the Palestinian militants. The U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, spoke about this at a news conference at the U.N. in New York City today. It's been nearly four months since Hamas's horrific terrorist attack on October 7th, an attack that set so much heartbreak and so much devastation in motion. But let me be clear, hopelessness is not an option here. And so the United States has continued to work toward a goal that all of us should aspire to, a sustainable resolution of this conflict, so that Israelis and Palestinians can live side by side and enjoy equal measures of security, dignity, and freedom. To set us down the path toward that future, we've been working tirelessly with Qatar, Egypt, and other regional partners on a strong, compelling proposal. Our engagement is the best opportunity to reunite all hostages with their families. Hostages, the Security Council has in previous resolutions urged Hamas and other groups to release. And it would enable a prolonged humanitarian pause, longer than the one we saw in November, allowing for more life-saving food, water, fuel, medicines to get into the hands of Palestinian Uh, Palestinian uh, civilians who desperately need it. If accepted and implemented, this proposal would move all parties one step closer to creating the conditions for a sustainable cessation of hostilities. The Council has the obligation, it has the obligation to ensure that any action we take in the coming days increases pressure on Hamas to accept the proposal. We believe that the draft resolution put forward by Algeria does not achieve this end. On the contrary, this draft resolution could put sensitive negotiations in jeopardy, derailing the exhaustive, ongoing diplomatic efforts to secure the release of hostages and secure an extended pause that Palestinian civilians and aid workers so desperately need. The U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, at a news conference at the U.N. in New York City today. Leaders from Hamas and Islamic Jihad, writes CNN, held a call on Friday to discuss a proposal for a potential hostage deal and ceasefire, according to a statement. The statement noted 
that the leaders agreed that any deal should incorporate the following. Complete end to the aggression, withdrawal of the occupation army outside the Gaza Strip, lifting of the siege and reconstruction. CNN writes this comes after a broad framework for a hostage release and potential ceasefire in the war between Hamas and Israel was said to have been agreed to among negotiators in Paris last weekend. Turning to the war between Ukraine and Russia, this reporting from AP out of The Hague, Netherlands, the United Nations top court said Friday it had jurisdiction to rule on a request by Ukraine for a declaration that Kyiv is not responsible for genocide. The ruling comes in a case filed by Ukraine alleging that Moscow used trumped-up claims of genocide to justify its invasion nearly two years ago. The International Court of Justice said it did not have jurisdiction to other aspects of Ukraine's case. Claims that Russia's invasion violated the 1948 Genocide Convention and that Moscow's recognition of two breakaway republics in eastern Ukraine also amounted to a breach of that convention. That from Associated Press. A program hosted by the Atlantic Council in Washington today titled Five Scenarios for Russia's Future, covered by C-SPAN. The Atlantic Council writes that the paper is needed because to respond to the specter of continued Russian aggression, it is essential to take stock of how Russia looks and interacts with the world today and how it might change or not in the future. The author of this paper is Casey Michael, director of Combating Kleptocracy Program at the Human Rights Foundation. What are the five scenarios that this paper deals with? Uh, The first is, unfortunately, the easiest to digest and certainly the likeliest in the short term, and that is Putin's continued rule. With presidential elections upcoming, no organized opposition to be found. Apologies to Boris Nadezhdin. And with renewed optimism in Moscow about the war in Ukraine, there is little reason to think that Putin won't continue steering the Kremlin for the foreseeable future. But that is easy to imagine. That's what we've been dealing with for years. In terms of future scenarios, though, from there, things get a little bit murkier. Which brings us to the second scenario. Putin's ouster, followed by the installation of a nationalistic regime or cadre. With a little bit further time horizon, it is easy to envision some kind of redux of Yevgeny Prigozhin's quasi-mutiny, quasi-push, whatever you'd like to call it, from last year. After all, all of the ingredients are still there. The frustration with Putin's bungled invasion, the continued stripping of Russia of men and material for this quagmire, as well as the kind of spiraling wealth inequality that has launched populists and revolutionaries the world over. It's all still there. And while Prigozhin never made it to Moscow, it wasn't for lack of trying, the way was not that barricaded. As we know, the Kremlin was by and large quite open. And if Prigozhin accomplished anything, and I apologize for this image, he revealed that Putin is a czar with no clothes. Now, those are two scenarios. The third scenario also deals with Putin's ouster or potentially even his death in office, but with a different and far more technocratic regime emerging. Not a democratic one per se, but one that at least admits to broader failures of policy in Ukraine and pledges a return to a kind of status quo antebellum if only the West will lift its sanctions and its price cap policies. It is a regime that wants, in a term I'm sure we will all be familiar with, what it calls a reset. Now, as you'll see in the paper, this is the scenario I perhaps fear the most, since we will once more end up with Western politicians suckered in by this kind of rhetoric, convinced that Russia has finally changed, all while ignoring all of the lessons we have supposedly learned over the past few decades. Now, the fourth scenario is perhaps the least likely, 
in the short uh, to medium term, but it is also one, and Brian, you and I were talking about this just the other day, I am perhaps being foolishly naive to even consider. And that is one, however, I still feel is guaranteed over a long enough uh, time horizon, and that is Russia's democratic transition. It's democratic flowering. I know, I know this is unlikely in the next few years, um, but even while Navalny and Karamorza are languishing in jail, and even while Russia's democratic opposition remains smothered, if we pull back, I do think, at least on my end, it's relatively easy to see how this might end up coming about. After all, this is the story of every other European empire prior. Colonial failures force regimes and polities to give up dreams of empire, and as a result, democratic reforms flourish. This is a story we saw with the United Kingdom, battered by Irish Republicans and Indian patriots. This is a story we saw with the French, undone by Algerian and Vietnamese forces, and it is a story we saw in Portugal after those in Angola and Mozambique finally evicted their former colonizers. And it is a story that we may yet see if, and this is a big if, we do everything we can to help Ukraine beat back Russian invaders and reclaim every square inch of sovereign territory. So those are four scenarios. The fifth and final one is something of an inverse of this story of democratic transition. Because there is another path that these kinds of colonial legacies can also point to and which Russia has, perhaps ironically, already dealt with in its past. This is civil war, this is state fracture, and this is for at least certain colonies still considered part of the Russian Federation freedom. Now it's impossible to tell what the spark for this may be. Perhaps it's the death of Ramzan Kadyrov in Chechnya and the sparking of a third Chechen war. Perhaps it's protests erupting in Tatarstan or in Sakha directed at Putin's war machine and predicated on colonial legacies that have never been dealt with. Or perhaps it's something else entirely, which we still can't see coming because we are so focused on Moscow and because so many of those of us that follow Russia generally speak only Russian and we don't speak Tatar or Sakha or Chechen which means we're gonna miss this until it's right on top of us. Now this fifth scenario is an outcome, perhaps an out of the box one, that many of us still refuse to treat and still refuse to consider. But it is one that thanks to Putin's policies and Russia's refusal to even recognize itself as a colonial power is increasingly likely. And frankly, the more I dive into the myriad histories of Russia's internal colonies, the more inescapable it becomes. The more I read of anti-Russian pogroms in Tuva in the 1990s, the more I read about the broken pledges of sovereignty to Tatarstan under Boris Yeltsin, the more I read about the unfulfilled promises of an independent army for Sakha, all while it is stripped of its natural wealth, the more you realize these tensions are just waiting for a moment to return. And the more you realize these legacies may be out of sight but they are not out of mind. Casey Michael from the Human Rights Foundation at today's Atlantic Council program on the release of his paper, Five Scenarios for Russia's Future. You can find the full program on our website at cspan.org, our video library. From the Guardian newspaper, Russia's election commission has said it found dead souls among the more than 100,000 signatures of support submitted by Boris Nedetsin the sole anti-war candidate in next month's presidential election, in a sign that he could be disqualified from a carefully managed ballot meant to deliver victory for Vladimir Putin. That from The Guardian. This is Washington Today. 
WJLA-TV in Channel 7 in Washington writes that Joe Madison, the longtime radio personality and civil rights activist, has died, according to a statement from the Madison family on Thursday. He was 74. Madison passed peacefully at home, surrounded by family, according to the statement. Madison's storied radio career began in the 1980s in Detroit, slowly finding his way to Philadelphia and D.C., where he resided for over 45 years with his wife, Sharon, known as the Black Eagle. Madison often put himself at the forefront of civil rights issues to motivate into action. That's from WJLA-TV reporting here in Washington. Joe Madison was interviewed on C-SPAN's Q&A program in 2007. Joe Madison, what would you say, how would you define what you do for a living? Uh, Talk, (laughs) listen, listen, talk, uh, think, read, uh, disseminate information. And Brian, I would probably say the thing that's different is I always end by asking the question, what are you going to do about it? Um, uh, You know, they're talk shows. Uh, but I come out of an activist civil rights, so I always tell people I'm not a journalist. I'm really a, a talk show. I'm an activist who happened to be asked to do a talk show. So then at the end of the day, when all the talking's done, and there's a lot of it, question that I always say, okay, to the caller, all right, now what are you going to do about it? Not, not what Jesse Jackson's going to do. You've probably heard it. Not what Al Sharpton's going to do. Not what this leader is going to do. The question is, What are you going to do about it? Because all the great social movements in history have taken place because individuals decided to do something about it. Rosa Parks didn't have to check with Martin Luther King not to give up that seat. Um, I mean, history is replete with people who took Martin Luther, didn't check with people to, to bring about reformation. History is replete with people who took individual action. And that's, that's what I do every day, every day. Radio talk show host Joe Madison on C-SPAN's Q&A program in 2007. He has passed away at the age of 74. President Biden posting on X, Joe Madison was the voice of a generation. Whether it was a hunger strike for voting rights or his advocacy for anti-lynching legislation that I was proud to sign in 2022, Joe fought hard against injustice. Jill and Jill's and my thoughts are with his wife, Sherry, and entire family. That post from President Biden. Congressman Glenn G.T. Thompson, Republican of Pennsylvania, posting on X, Happy Groundhog Day. This morning, our very own Pennsylvania's 15th Congressional District Groundhog, Puxatawney Phil, predicted we will have an early spring. The House of Representatives is not in session today, so Congressman Glenn Thompson celebrated Groundhog Day on Wednesday on the House floor. Mr. Speaker, I rise today ahead of a very special day back in my district. This Friday, February 2nd, is Groundhog Day. This annual event takes place in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, located in southern Jefferson County. For years, crowds have flooded (coughs) to Gobbler's Knob on the evening of February 1st to see our weather predictor extraordinaire and to hear his weather prediction firsthand. I want to recognize and thank one of the most productive job-producing constituents in my district, Punxsutawney Phil. His hard work every year predicting the end of the winter brings so much joy to the Pennsylvania 15th and across the nation. For more than 120 years, our furry friend has been predicting our winter weather. This tradition stems from Pennsylvania's strong German heritage, 
Legend has it, if Phil sees his shadow, it is an omen of six more weeks of winter. If not, we know spring is just around the corner. Crowds began to gather the night before and wake Phil up by chanting his name in the early hours of the morning on February 2nd. As our uh, seer of seas emerges from his burrow, the Punxsutawney Groundhog Club Inner Circle president translates Phil's prediction and relays the message to the crowd. Despite naysayers trying to replace him with an animatronic groundhog or a gold coin, Phil continues to bring a smile to so many faces. I believe in creating jobs, not eliminating them, and Punxsutawney Phil is no exception. I'll always stand up for the hardworking men, women, and rodents in the 15th District of Pennsylvania. In all seriousness, Groundhog Day brings together people of all different backgrounds, and this fun celebration reminds us of the importance of tradition. It's not only an economic stimuli in the district, but it's also a great source of pride. Be sure to tune in on Friday morning to see Phil share his weather predictions. We could either have an earlier spring or six more weeks of winter. I've been told he is never wrong. Thank you, Phil, for sharing your wisdom and weather predictions with all of us. Congressman Glenn Thompson, Republican from Pennsylvania on the House floor on Wednesday, ahead of today, Groundhog Day. And in fact, Puxtani Phil did predict an early spring. There are some rivals around the country. Cleveland Magazine posting on X, its official Buckeye Chuck predicts an early spring. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter, Word for Word. It's free. And get the stories making headlines in Washington sent to your inbox every day. Subscribe at cspan.org slash connect. Have a good night and weekend.